0: Let's pray before we get into God's word. Oh, what a glorious thing it is, once again, dear God, to consider the cross, the power of the cross, Christ and him crucified. What better subject ought we be considering and proclaiming and meditating on but our Lord Jesus, our precious Savior, dying for sinners. So I thank you, God, that we are in this particular text this morning in in the gospel of mark and i pray lord that each of our hearts and our souls would be lifted up and caused to look to the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world for it's in his name we pray amen well turn in your bibles with me to mark chapter 15 and this is the crucifixion of king jesus part two and as we get started today, following up from last week, part one of the crucifixion of the king, uh, this will lead us to communion at the end of our, our service today, remembering our Lord who said, this is my body broken for you. And remember, he's already gone through the kangaroo court, right? The six trials and the false charges and the unjust verdict and the arrogant abuse and the brutal beatings and the scorning and the scourging and all of that, he's been up all night and now it says, and they crucified him. They crucified him. And last week I shared just a little bit about what is the crucifixion. But as we get started here today, I want to give just a, Uh, a a description from a medical doctor, and just open with that as we follow up from the things from last week leading into the last three hours of the cross here. So, a little bit lengthy, but stay with me because um, I think it's helpful. This doctor writes, The cross is placed on the ground, and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist, He drives a heavy, square, wrought-iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails and the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails and the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet. As the arms fatigue... Cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale, and bring in life-giving oxygen. Just a little more here. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum, And begins to compress the heart. And so this is uh, from Dr. C. Truman Davis from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. As we are aware, as that physical description plainly um, details, crucifixion was a horrific, horrendous, painful death, excruciating uh, that word, that English word itself, actually comes from two Latin words. Ex, which means out of or from, and cruciare, or crux, which means cross. And dying on a cross was so painful that it came to be associated with any pain that caused extreme suffering. Well, this is what our Lord went through, as we saw in part one last week of the crucifixion of King Jesus. And as intense and awful as that physical pain of hanging on a cross for the first three hours was, there was even worse dread coming to Jesus for the last three hours on that cross. That brings us to our text this morning in Mark 15. And I'm going to read our passage, verses 33 to 41. And uh, if you are able to, um, we want to honor God's word. Please stand with me. And if you're not, that's okay. Follow along. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 41. This is the word of God. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him. Jerusalem. Please be seated. Well, there's a lot to cover in this passage, and when you weave in the other gospel accounts, there's even more, and we'll do our best today as we kind of hone in on Mark's gospel. He, in climactic fashion, selects six particular Events that took place as Jesus died on the cross. We're just going to highlight six specific events in Mark's gospel and try to bring in some of the others as well. But the first thing that we see in verse 33 is a supernatural darkness. A supernatural darkness. It says, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So, What time is the sixth hour? 12 p.m. 12 p.m. High noon. It was high noon when this darkness fell upon the land. And Luke 23, verse 44, which is one of the parallel passages, adds, until the ninth hour. So the sixth hour till the ninth hour, which means from 12 p.m. noon until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So this darkness lasted. For the final three hours of Jesus' crucifixion. And this is not simply darkened skies okay, or dark gray or even blackish clouds making for a, an incredibly overcast day in Israel. Okay? Nor was it a, a natural eclipse of some sort. It just happened to occur at that exact moment. No, the Gospel writers are specific that right in the middle of the day, darkness fell over the whole land. And that Greek word for land has been translated frequently in the New Testament to say earth. And so it strongly suggests that this was a a global darkness. And different people have differing opinions. I tend to believe it was. But it's possible that it was all the land of Israel. Either way... Luke 23, once again, adds this. Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured. Which is to say that the sky didn't just become really dark. No, it was that the sun was obscured. Clearly this was a miraculous, supernatural darkness. Who can obscure the sun? (laughs) Who can block the sun's light? Surely god's hand is big enough to block the sun's light or he can just interfere as he had done in the past right you remember joshua chapter 10 the sun stood still okay god is able to make things stop and yet people be able to breathe and live and just god is capable of intervening in the natural course of things to to provide miracles for his purposes So he brought complete darkness over the land of Egypt, if you remember, the ninth plague, uh, to show his almighty power and judgment to Pharaoh. Like that miraculous event, which was 1,400 years prior, this darkness was a symbol of what? Of judgment, of God's judgment. By contrast, note that Jesus' birth was accompanied by light, And good old Luke again writes in chapter 1 that the shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. A good news of great joy was for all the people for today in the city of David. A Savior has been born to you who is Christ the Lord. Right? Light, salvation, birth, the coming of the Savior. But here in the last hours of Jesus' life, The light has gone out of the afternoon skies. The lights have been temporarily turned off, if you will. Spurgeon poetically referred to this hour as, quote, the awful darkness of that midday midnight, end quote. Truly, this was a supernatural act of God, a visible cosmic sign of his judgment on sin. And we know that darkness was frequently a sign of God's judgment, right? In the past, whether it's talking about things that happened before or in the future, and you go to Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah 13. I'm not going to go to him today, but Joel chapter 2, the day of the Lord judgment. Amos chapter 5, again, the day of the Lord. That's talking about future and darkness to to come. In judgment, Zephaniah 1, verses 14 and 15. And even as you think of Jesus's descriptions of hell. And what does he call it many times? Outer, utter darkness. This is reference to hell. So back to Mark here, Uh, I want us to note that the darkness does not symbolize God's absence. But rather, it's his presence to curse rather than to bless. And really, this is the way that We should understand what hell is. God is not just, he didn't just disappear and and Satan is uh, ruling over that, that fiery place. No, God's presence is fully there, but it's only to curse and to judge forever. So God was present in this darkness, but in these hours it was his holy, terrifying presence to curse and to judge that fell over the land. So this marked the beginning of the most important three-hour period in all of world history, even though you, you won't read about it in any of the school textbooks. Like the darkness that God put over the land of Egypt was soon followed by the death of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn, Jesus Christ, the preeminent, supreme, one and only begotten Son of God, would soon follow this darkness. So the question is, what's happening during those three hours of utter supernatural darkness? Our next point is the Father's forsaking. The Father's forsaking in verses 34 to 36. And again, it was at the ninth hour when Jesus cries out, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Luke 23 says that the darkness lifted. And that's when Jesus cried out to his Father. And hey, let me just really quickly give you the, the order of Jesus' seven sayings on the cross, okay? The first three already happened prior to this moment right here. And again, uh, Luke 23 says, um, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Right? Mercy, mercy of Jesus while he's hanging on the cross for these people who have nailed him and are, and are abusing him and are putting him up there. Luke 23 again, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Mercy, grace to the repentant thief who is hung next to him. And then in John 19, he says to John, Woman, behold your son. To Mary, actually, woman, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. So in those words of Jesus as he's being crucified, we see his amazing grace to the very end towards sinners and even his followers who had abandoned him before. And he's all alone here on the cross. Such amazing grace we see from our Savior. But back to Mark 15. And it's in Matthew 27 as well. Eli Eli, 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 lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Towards the end of that torturous three hours of darkness, and total of six hours on the cross, he loudly cries this out in sheer agony to his heavenly Father. And Jesus, who is God the Son, he calls out, my God, which expresses his humanity. Right? Jesus was truly, fully human. So he addresses his heavenly Father as God. But that he says, my God, shows his ongoing personal relationship with his Father God. He calls out to the one he knows intimately. But he says, why have you forsaken me? And I want us to understand that he's not asking in a way that is ignorant or uninformed or seeking to find out. Rather, it communicates the absolutely unbearable spiritual turmoil that he was experiencing for those three dark hours. This is the first time he's ever experienced anything but perfect fellowship and unity and love and oneness with God his Father. This is all the way from eternity past, which we know that, he willingly left so that he could do what he's doing now. So all the way from eternity past to this moment, never had anything but perfect, pure fellowship with his father. So he's quoting Psalm 22 here, which, again, as I mentioned last week, is a messianic psalm. And he's quoting in fulfillment of it. He expressed his spiritual anguish of separation from his father as a question, but it's more rhetorical than one of ignorance or wonder. He quotes this scripture as an affirmation of his relationship to God as his father and also an acknowledgement that his father had forsaken him. So, question again, what is happening for those three dark hours on the cross? That's what's happening. These final hours of gloom and judgment and curse. And it's upon sin... But where does that gloom and judgment and curse fall on exactly? Well, it was falling upon the innocent one. Jesus was bearing God's curse and judgment for sin. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree, Galatians 3.13. The sins of the world. As the sin bearer, the Son of God was experiencing the abandonment and despair that would come from the full outpouring of God's wrath. This was the very cup of wrath that he prayed might pass, remember, if possible, in the Garden of Gethsemane, to the point of his sweat becoming like drops of blood as he pleaded with the Father, yet not my will, but your will. All of this should remind us of what the Bible says. Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, right? We Bible students know what that $10 $10 word means, right? Propitiation it means satisfaction. It means appeasement. The verb means to satisfy. In the New Testament, in 1 John 2, verse 2 and 4, verse 10, it refers to a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God or absorbs the wrath of God and thereby makes God favorable toward us, ready to forgive us. I'll remind you, 1 John 2, verse 2. John writes, And he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 1 John 4, verse 10 says, "In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Notice John says there, it's it's not that we loved God. We should have. We were supposed to. We were actually created to love him and know him, but we didn't. So what is love? Well, according to John, it's that he loved us, not that we loved him. And in not loving him, our God who made us and gave us life, one could argue that we commit the greatest sin because we we break the greatest commandment which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. But what did God do in response to our lack of love for him and our extreme love for ourselves? Well, automatic wrath would have been just punishment for such ingratitude for our lack of appreciation, our lack of respect for having no fear of God and reverence for God, for our lack of honor, for our lack of glorifying Him, hey, this, this is very well deserving of God's wrath, which, read, hell. To quote one pastor, he says, Hell is a vivid parable of the outrage of failing to honor God, failing to glorify God, failing to thank God as God. He says, the essence of evil, what makes evil evil, is not harm done to man, but indignities done to God, end quote. Sometimes we think of sin as just doing harm to others. So if we don't hurt others, and it's just in our private life, it's not sin. That is not God's definition of what sin is. Sin is breaking God's laws, breaking God's standard. It's it's primarily offense towards God. Holman's Bible Dictionary says, when used of God, wrath refers to His absolute opposition to sin and evil. And another systematic theology says, wrath is God's righteous displeasure towards sin. And lastly, just to round out this definition, Grudem. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin, end quote. Okay, not just the ones that, that we don't like. God hates all sin. He has a righteous anger against every last sin, inside and out. So back to 1 John 4, verse 10. Out of God's own choosing to love us, it says, "In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us, right? He sent his one and only Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the the wrath absorber. He is the sacrifice. Jesus is the substitute. Jesus is the sin bearer. Jesus is the satisfaction. He is the one who satisfies God's fury and holy anger against all sin. And so how precious is 2 Corinthians 5.21 again, right? For God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Basically, the crucifixion of King Jesus here in that dark hour is the the most significant moment in all history. It's the climax of the vast forever Eternity past into eternity future. And it's because the blame for the sins of man were placed upon the Son of God from his Father in heaven. And so Isaiah 53 says, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. R.C. Sproul says, It is the cross that reveals the most violent and mysterious outpouring of the wrath of God that we find anywhere in Scripture. End quote. And John MacArthur says, Moved by his perfect justice, God's infinite wrath released an eternity of punishment on the incarnate Son, who, as an infinite and eternal person, absorbed the tortures of hell in a finite span of time. End quote. That's what was going on on the cross for those three dark hours. As I said before, even though the physical suffering that Jesus was experiencing was Uh, unthinkably great. The spiritual agony and being punished for the sins of man and being forsaken by his own father was infinitely greater. We should remember this when we dwell on and meditate on the cross of our Savior at all times, but especially as we are going to be observing the Lord's table today, on Good Friday, as we remember and celebrate Jesus and the resurrection next week. But let me take us to these next couple verses, which is also attached to this point, the forsaking of the Father, or the Father's forsaking. It says in verse 35 and 36, when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Some people were there able to hear Jesus' cry, and it might seem at first glance that they misheard him, They genuinely thought out he was calling out to Elijah. And also it appears uh, perhaps a sympathetic gesture by some random unidentified person. He comes and fills a sponge with sour wine, puts it on a reed, gives him a drink. Some cheap wine that the soldiers probably drank to quench their thirst. But I believe that this was a further mockery of the Lord, continuing the abuse scorning jeering his loud cry out to god he's calling out to god but they're saying ha he's calling for elijah to help let's see if elijah will show up and gives him a drink to keep him going that's where i lean because i think it fits the entire scene more accurately everything that we've seen up to this point all this vile despicable behavior is taking place as the lord is being crucified and this adds to the portrait of all those depraved sinners surrounding the Messiah, continuing to pour out their contempt and abuse. And verse 37 is our next point, the Savior's death. The Savior's death. It says there, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And to continue those last sayings of Jesus on the cross, hey, um, there's a couple before before this. Oh, there's one before this, sorry, in John chapter 19, uh, which would be the fifth. I gave you the first four. The fifth one in John 19, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Okay? And then, Mark 15 here, then they give him that drink. And after that, in verse 30 of John chapter 19... So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, what? It is finished. It is finished. Thank you. The debt has been paid, in other words. What debt? The debt that was owed to God due to sin. It was paid in full, stamped and delivered at the cross as Jesus gives up his life and declares the work of salvation done. It is finished. And his work was only acceptable to the Father because the Son has done this in sinless perfection, atoning for every sin of every single person who would ever believe in him. So what a wonderful promise for us believers. And if you have not staked your claim upon the Lord Jesus Christ yet as your personal Savior, listen to this. Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14, says when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Amen. Amen. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. That's good news, dear people. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so, Luke 23, also back in Mark chapter 15. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Okay, so what was the loud cry that is in our passage today, Mark chapter 15, Right? In verse 37, he uttered that loud cry. Well, Luke 23 says that he cries out to the Father, a loud voice into your hands, I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. I want us to note that Jesus was in control here. He didn't weakly gasp out these final words, barely alive, right before his life was taken from him. No, he says, I commit my spirit. He does this with a, a loud voice, with strength. It was, it was more of a, a shout of victory rather than a dismal final eking out of an exhausted man. I'm not saying he wasn't exhausted or he wasn't put out, battered, bruised, beaten, but he was in control. He says, into your hand I commit my spirit. Luke says, then, then he dismissed his spirit. I remind you of Jesus' own words in John chapter 10. I think I read this last week, but once again, John 10, verse 11 and 18. He says, the good shepherd, talking about himself, lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. We'll see you next week. So with that, he breathed his last. He breathed his last. He was fully, truly human. He died that Good Friday. Finally, after those unfathomable six hours of anguish and suffering, he was dead. In John 19, verse 31 to 33, it tells us that the soldiers broke the legs of the two thieves, but not Jesus' because they saw that he was already dead. He put the spirit aside, blood and water come pouring out for sure. So upon Jesus' death, Mark describes three things as happening, and these are our last three shorter points for today. The first thing in verse 38 is the tearing of the temple curtain. The tearing of the temple curtain. Verse 38 says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And I'll remind you in Matthew 27, Matthew says that there was a the earth was shaking. There was a there was a bit of an earthquake a seismic disturbance there and um, when jesus died along with that there was uh, dead people rising from the graves and they actually appeared uh, to many people so that's um, maybe a, a preview of the resurrection the preview of the hope that is promised for everyone who believes in jesus the old testament saints some of them many of them even came and says they talked, they met with some people. And so I believe that they, they came in their resurrected, glorified bodies. is very exceptional. And God took them at some point. We don't read about anything else about them in any of Scripture, anywhere. Um, and yet, this is part of what happened when Jesus breathed his last. Incredible. But along with that, this massive veil a curtain that separated sinful people, sinners, Except for the priest or the high priest who were only allowed to offer sacrifices on behalf of themselves and on behalf of the people, they had to be separated from the glorious presence of the thrice holy God. So it being torn communicates that access to this thrice holy God was now available because of Jesus' atoning sacrificial death on the cross. Top to bottom, right? This This is God's action. Not, not not, man's. And so, a priest was no longer needed to come on behalf of the people. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. And so he became the only sacrifice necessary for sinners to come to God. The sacrificial system is done away with now. There's no curtain needed, no veil needed, no separation, no priests, no sacrifices, no ceremonies, no rituals, no animals Imagine the Passover time in the temple there, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The priests would have been there. Many, many animals would have been sacrificed and slaughtered. But Christ, he brings in the new covenant of his blood, his once-for-all atoning death that takes away the need for animal sacrifices because all of it was pointing to him in the first place, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 10 Verses 11 and 12 helps us with that. Listen, it says, Every priest, human priest, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So the tearing of the temple curtain was another of the miraculous events that accompanied Jesus' death. Second of the last three things here is the confession of the centurion, the leader of roughly a 100 soldiers. The confession of the Roman centurion. He was right there. He witnessed Jesus' last breath and words. He says, Truly this man was the Son of God. And... Note that this is the only time in Mark's gospel that a human being confesses those words. Elsewhere, it's God the Father who does. And we know, of course, in Matthew, Peter makes that great confession. But pairing this with Luke chapter 23, verse 47, it says, after Jesus breathes his last, verse 47 says, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Praising God. So you think about this centurion who probably within these last hours was one of the ones mocking, beating Jesus, hanging him on a cross, being part of that whole gang those arrogant, abusive, heathen, pagan, Roman soldiers. And now he's praising God, confessing that he's innocent and that truly he was the Son of God. This is God's power to save. This is God's mercy to forgive. Again, what did, what did Jesus pray on those first three hours while he was on the cross? Father, forgive them they know not what they do answer to prayer so looking at the last thing as we wrap up here verses 40 to 41 is the witness of women the witness of women it says some women were looking on from a distance and Mark mentions a few of them as do the other parallel passages and uh, Mary Magdalene is the first and maybe maybe the, the more prominent one. Um, but Luke chapter 8 is where we meet Mary Magdalene. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, and I'll just read it to you. Soon afterwards, Luke writes, He began going around, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another. Proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, so this is part of the first couple years of his ministry. The twelve disciples were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, because that's the name of the town that she was from, from whom seven demons had gone out, and then others, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing their support out of their private means. So Mary Magdalene was one who was demon-possessed, uh, seven demons, in fact, that Jesus healed her from and cast out demons from. And so she was part of those women who are serving and ministering and supporting Jesus. She is not the Luke 7, verse 37, immoral woman. Okay, the, the woman there, they, they, people through movies or through just whatever, bad teaching, um, that woman, Luke, Luke chapter seven, was probably a, a prostitute, sexually immoral, who was who repented and was forgiven by Jesus. But Luke chapter eight, Mary Magdalene is not the same woman. So the other passages speak of Mary Magdalene and the other ladies that Mark mentions here: Mary, the mother of James the Less, Joseph, and Salome. And we're going to look a little bit more next Sunday at them because they're in our next passage as they come three days later to the grave of Jesus. So this is part of the resurrection story. So I'll just say for now that Mark mentions also that there were many other women, all from Galilee. Okay? And so um, they followed him up to Jerusalem. So we want to observe, importantly, that these faithful women who served followed, supported, ministered to Jesus just in the years of his ministry as they became saved and followed him as his disciples. They did this all the way to the time of his crucifixion. They were from a distance, and yet they were following. So we'll look more at that next week, but we need to wrap up here, and I want to close with this. um, Back to the, the, the father's forsaking and share a, uh, an anecdote from uh, Elie Wiesel, who was, as you probably know, a Holocaust survivor. And he tells of being uh, an incident of him being singled out for punishment one day in the Nazi death camp. He was a teenager at the time, a teenage young man, and he had inadvertently stumbled onto one of the officers, the, the German officers, taking advantage of a woman in the back of a warehouse and so the officer was enraged at being caught and so he assembled some of the prisoners including wiesel and wiesel's father and so this wave of dread sweeps over the group of prisoners who were taken aside wiesel felt sweat running down his back as his number was called as he stepped forward a crate was pulled into place and the teenage boy was ordered to lie across it to be whipped. The pain he described as indescribable, and the beating left him barely conscious. But Wiesel later said that one person suffered more than he did. That would be his father, who was standing among the prisoners, helplessly watching, and unable to do anything to save or spare his son. And as we consider, once again, the crucifixion of King Jesus, we know from the scriptures that it was these Romans, it was the Jews, Peter says, who you nailed to a cross, but it was according to God's predetermined plan, God the Father. And he willingly stood aside, even forsook his son as he's being scourged and whipped and nailed And crucified. Possibly, probably, not even in heaven will we fully understand the wondrous cross, Christ and Him crucified. But this I know, and I think all of us who are saved, we know with all our heart that it's by His blood that we're redeemed, and it's by His wounds that we are healed. And that's what we want to take into, that remembrance, that that wonderful, precious clinging to of the cross, of our precious Savior, Christ and Him crucified. We, We want to remember Him as we observe the Lord's table this morning.